This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week we'll start over at the Jewish Insider. The first article, Israel officials say they're badly in need of additional U.S. military aid. By Mark Rod and Lahav Harkov. Israel has an immediate need for additional U.S. military aid, Israeli sources told Jewish Insider, as the support remains mired in Congress amid disputes between Republicans and Democrats and the House and Senate over Ukraine aid and border policy, among other issues, with no clear path or timeline moving forward. Knesset Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee Chairman Yuli Edelstein said that when he was on Capitol Hill last week, he told all of his interlocutors that the aid is extremely urgent. This is aid for immediate needs, not something we'll use in a matter of years, he emphasized to Jewish Insider on Thursday. An Israeli security official said that the aid package is critical for Israel's security and for our ability to maintain readiness and defense on all fronts. Another source said that Israel is already beginning to tap into stockpiles of munitions and air defense interceptors that would be needed in the increasingly likely event of a war with Hezbollah along Israel's northern border. Israel's needs would be especially great in the event of a protracted conflict, the source added. That source noted that the situation would become critical if Congress is unable to pass additional military aid by March or April, given issues in military production supply chains. Israeli sources denied that March was a specifically problematic date in terms of supply, simply saying that the need is immediate. But Edelstein explained that the problem comes from the intersection between congressional politics and the Knesset's schedule. Even if Congress approves the aid package in the coming weeks, it will still take time before Israel will be able to spend the money, by his estimate, not before the second half of 2024. The Knesset is set to vote on the updated 2024 state budget next week with all of the new war-related expenditures. The Defense Ministry drafted its budget taking the U.S. aid into consideration, and the ministry has already placed orders based on that assumption. If the aid does not arrive on time, in some cases the ministry can make necessary procurements within Israel's defense industry, but in many cases the government may have to make cuts within the defense ministry or from other areas to fulfill its commitments. Neither the security official nor Edelstein would comment on the Iron Dome stockpile. Edelstein said the aid was urgent for specific needs, and the security official said that air defense is among the critical elements that we need. The Iron Dome missile defense system not only protects Israeli cities, but also gives Israel's leadership the time to make strategic decisions about when and how to respond to attacks. Edelstein acknowledged that the holdup of the U.S. aid is not because of any problem in Israel. This is totally about American politics. Everyone promised the aid would come soon, including the most senior Republicans and Democrats, but I still don't know when that will be. The security official was confident in the strong U.S.-Israel relationship and ties with the administration and members of Congress on both sides of the aisle. One Israeli official exasperatedly paraphrased the Golda Meir quote that peace will come when the Arabs will love their children more than they hate us, saying, when the Democrats and Republicans decide they love Israel more than they hate each other, we will get the aid. U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin have told their Israeli counterparts that they are committed to getting Israel the aid that it needs 
Israeli diplomatic sources told Jewish Insider. U.S. lawmakers have said for months that Israel urgently needs additional aid as soon as possible, and that Israeli officials have been growing increasingly concerned about finalizing the aid package. And next from Jewish Insider, House Committee subpoenas Harvard leaders for anti-Semitism documents by Mark Rod. The House Committee on Education and the Workforce issued subpoenas to Harvard's leaders on Friday morning, seeking documents related to the committee's investigation into campus anti-Semitism that the university allegedly withheld. The subpoena is a historic step, the first time, according to the committee, that it has issued a subpoena to a university. It comes after two months of exchanges of letters and documents between the committee and Harvard following a disastrous hearing that contributed to former Harvard President Claudine Gay's resignation. The subpoenas, issued by committee chair Virginia Fox, Republican of North Carolina, specifically target Penny Pritzker, Harvard Corporation's senior fellow, interim president Alan Garber, and N.P. Narvikar, Harvard Management Company chief executive officer. Fox said in a statement that at least 40% of the 2,516 pages of documents Harvard has provided to the committee were already publicly available, and that the university had failed to address some of the priority requests she made in a letter last week in which she threatened subpoenas. Harvard's continued failure to satisfy the committee's requests is unacceptable, Fox said. I will not tolerate delay and defiance of our investigation, while Harvard's Jewish students continue to endure the firestorm of anti-Semitism that has engulfed its campus. If Harvard is truly committed to combating anti-Semitism, it has had every opportunity to demonstrate its commitment with actions, not words. In cover letters to the three Harvard officials, Fox accused the school of failing to treat the probe with appropriate seriousness, suggesting that the school is obstructing this investigation and is willing to tolerate the proliferation of anti-Semitism on its campus. Fox set a deadline for document production of March 4th. The documents requested across the three subpoenas include Harvard's leadership's internal communications, records of reports of anti-Semitism and actions taken in response, records from the school's anti-Semitism task force and advisory group, and any documents relating to anti-Israel protests on Harvard's campus. The committee chairwoman described the documents in her letters as essential to inform the committee's consideration of potential legislation to address anti-Semitism in post-secondary education. And now we go over to JTA. A top UN official says Hamas is not a terrorist organization, sparking furious backlash from Israel, by Luke Tress. A top United Nations official said Hamas was not a terrorist organization on Wednesday, sparking outrage from Israel as the UN grapples with allegations of anti-Israel bias and anti-Semitism. Asked in a TV interview on Wednesday about Israel's plans to eliminate Hamas, Martin Griffiths, the head of the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, said, I've worked with many, many different terrorist and insurgent groups. Hamas is not a terrorist group for us, of course, as you know. It's a political movement, Griffiths added in the exchange on the UK's Sky News. Following criticism, Griffiths aimed to clarify his statement on Thursday afternoon, but ended up drawing more backlash. Just to clarify, Hamas is not on the list of groups designated as terrorist organizations by the United Nations Security Council, he wrote on X, formerly Twitter. 
referring to the group's invasion of Israel in which it killed approximately 1,200 people and took some 250 hostages. He added, this doesn't make their acts of terror on 7 October any less horrific and reprehensible, as I've been saying all along. The Post drew rebukes from Israel and Germany's foreign ministry. Israel, the United States, the European Union, the United Kingdom, and other countries have designated Hamas a terror group. Just to clarify, Israel's official account on X responded, tagging Griffiths, you're a Hamas apologist, and your statements are an insult to every single victim of October 7th. Pathetic. Griffith's agency, known as OCHA, coordinates international responses to humanitarian crises. A British national, he was appointed to his position by UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres in 2021 after working in the field of humanitarian aid for 50 years. In the interview, Griffiths acknowledged the trauma of October 7th in Israel, but averred that Israel likely could not win a military victory. He instead urged dialogue to end the conflict. If you want to have safety and security with people who are inevitably going to continue to be your neighbor in some form or another, you're going to have to create a relationship based on some shared values, Griffiths said. Israeli officials who have long derided the UN as deeply biased against Israel castigated Griffiths and the UN for the remarks. Shame on him, Israeli Foreign Minister Israel Katz said in a post on X, will eliminate Hamas with them or without them. Griffith's comments stood out because he is a high-level official appointed by Guterres and because the office he leads is part of the UN Secretariat, the UN's six principal agencies. His comments come days after the UN Special Rapporteur for the Palestinians, Francesca Albanese, incensed Israel and its supporters by saying victims of the October 7th attack were not killed because of their Judaism, but in response to Israel's oppression. In response, Israel said she was formally banned from entering the country, although she had already been refused entry. Unlike Griffiths, Albanese is an independent investigator appointed by the UN Human Rights Council, a separate body from the General Assembly. Guterres' office has repeatedly said he has no control over the hiring or firing of special rapporteurs, nor does he have any sway over their activities. Asked about Griffith's statement, a spokesperson for Guterres said at a Thursday press briefing that the designation for the UN of an entity as a terror organization can only be made by the Security Council. Albanese's comments were condemned by Israeli officials, the French and German foreign ministries, the U.S. mission to the UN, and the State Department's envoy for anti-Semitism, Deborah Lipstadt. In the past, Albanese has said the United States is subjugated by the Jewish lobby. Members of Congress from both parties have pushed for her removal. Guterres has sought to strike a balance between condemning both Hamas terrorism and Israeli military action in Gaza. On October 25th, he angered Israelis by saying that Hamas, the Hamas attack did not happen in a vacuum, linking the terrorist atrocities to occupation, settlements, and economic woes. The statement strained an already fraught relationship between the UN leadership and Israel. Guterres had also met with the families of Israeli hostages and formed an unlikely relationship with a group of Israeli protesters that gathers outside his midtown home every Friday morning to advocate for the hostages. He met with members of Munich's Jewish community during a visit to Germany on Thursday 
and advocated for the release of the hostages. Guterres has repeatedly called October 7th an act of terror. Both the General Assembly and the Human Rights Council annually condemn Israel more than all other countries combined. Israel also accuses the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, known as UNRWA, the aid agency for Palestinians, of abetting Hamas and perpetuating the conflict. Israel has said a portion of UNRWA staffers participated in the October 7th attack and are affiliated with Hamas. The Israeli military found a Hamas data center, data center beneath and connected to UNRWA's Gaza headquarters last week and has repeatedly found tunnels and weapons in and around UNRWA facilities. UNRWA's critics argue that it perpetuates the conflict by automatically granting refugee status to all Palestinians descended from those displaced by the 1948 war, unlike all other refugee groups worldwide. Critics also say UNRWA uses anti-Israel and anti-Semitic educational materials in schools. Albanese is a former UNRWA staffer. UN officials and others in the humanitarian aid world agree UNRWA is essential for providing aid to the Palestinians, especially during the war, which has caused widespread suffering and deprivation in Gaza. More than 28,000 Palestinians have been killed in the war, according to the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry. Israel says roughly a third of those killed are combatants. More than 200 Israeli soldiers have been killed in the invasion of Gaza. Next from JTA, FBI arrests Indiana man over threats to kill every Jew, but didn't tell Jewish community about him. By Andrew Lappin. The FBI arrested an Indiana man who promised to kill every Jew in Fort Wayne last year and local Jewish leaders are questioning why they weren't alerted to the threat sooner. The suspect, 41-year-old Jeffrey Stevens, admitted in interviews that he had posted violent anti-Semitic threats directly to the website of the CIA, as well as in a Facebook direct message to the Fort Wayne Police Department, according to a newly released affidavit. Stevens also wrote to the CIA, I'm going to shoot every pro-Israel U.S. government official in the head and boasted of having strong Palestinian, Hezbollah, and Iranian contacts. He is charged with communicating a threat in interstate commerce and faces a maximum of five years in prison. The arrest on Tuesday came amid reports of rising anti-Semitism in the United States as the Israel-Hamas war extends into its fifth month. Since Hamas's October invasion of Israel, American Jews have been attacked on college campuses, in their homes, and on the way to the synagogue, and one man in Los Angeles died after an altercation at a street protest. In that time, the FBI has made other arrests in connection with anti-Semitism. Stevens told officials he had a drinking problem, according to the affidavit. He wrote the post, including one reading Death to the Zionists following October 7th, but also posted some Israel-related material from other social media accounts prior to the attacks. As news of the arrest emerged, Jewish leaders wondered why they had not been warned of Stevens' intentions, despite the fact that he sent his threats directly to law enforcement months ago. We only found about this out about this two days ago, and the whole incident occurred in November. Jackie Schreier, executive director of the local Jewish Federation, wrote to JTA in an email, We are not happy to say the least. Fort Wayne, the second largest city in Indiana, 
currently has around 450 Jewish families among its approximately 250,000 residents, according to the Federation. Schreier said she would be meeting soon with the Security Community, the Secure Community Network, a nonprofit that coordinates security for American Jewish institutions, to discuss why the Jewish community was not told sooner of the threat. The SCN itself praised the arrest in a statement. The offender in this case made threats to the Jewish community of Fort Wayne, as well as to the dedicated members of our law enforcement and intelligence communities, Michael Masters, SCN's national director and CEO, said in a statement. This arrest highlights the potential spillover of international tensions into our own backyards and sends a clear message that our law enforcement partners continue to mitigate threats before they cause harm, especially amid rising Jew hate. Also this week, the FBI reportedly found anti-Semitic material at the home of a woman who recently opened fire at a Houston megachurch, wounding one person before she was shot and killed by off-duty officers. Authorities found a painting with the message, Death to Jews at the Shooter's Home. Her former mother-in-law, a self-professed Jewish universalist rabbi, told the foreword. The shooter, who was thought to have been suffering from mental illness, brought her seven-year-old son with her to the church. He was shot in the head and critically injured. Since October 7th, authorities have also arrested a Jewish man who threatened to kill Palestinians, and anti-Palestinian attackers have killed a six-year-old boy in Illinois and shot and wounded college students in Vermont. And next we go over to the New York Daily News. New York Police Department busts suspect in Staten Island hate attack. Assailant bashed man with bat called him Dirty Jew by Elizabeth Keogh. A hate crime suspect was nabbed Wednesday for bashing a stranger with a metal bat on a Staten Island street after calling him a dirty Jew, police said. Obadiah Lashley, 29, was arrested one day after police blasted out image of the suspect in hopes someone might be able to lead them to him. The attacker approached the 25-year-old victim on Grandview Avenue near Netherland Avenue in Mariner's Harbor and asked, Why are you a Jew? About 2.30 p.m. on Monday, police said. The assailant then spat, you dirty Jew, before smashing the victim in the back of the head with the bat, said police. The attacker ran off and the victim was taken to Staten Island University Hospital to be treated for cut to the head. Lashley is charged with assault as a hate crime, criminal possession of a weapon, aggravated harassment, menacing, and assault. He lives about a half mile from where the victim was attacked. Lashley's arraignment in Staten Island Criminal Court was pending Wednesday. Police Department data show that Staten Island's 121st Precinct, where Lashley allegedly carried out his offense, saw nine hate crimes in 2023, little changed from the ten hate crimes reported in the precinct in 2022. But officers in the precinct had less success catching hate crime suspects. Officers in the 121st, which covers Staten Island's northwestern shore, made three hate crime arrests in 2023, compared with nine in 2022. Hate crimes, particularly those targeting Jewish people, exploded in the city following the Hamas attacks in Israel on October 7th. That month, hate crimes spiked 124% with 101 incidents compared with 45 in October 2022, 
according to NYPD data. Of the 101 incidents reported citywide in October, 69 were anti-Semitic. That was a 214% increase over the 22 anti-Semitic hate crimes reported in October 2022, police said. So far in 2024, there have been 49 hate crimes citywide, according to data released last Sunday. Last year, during the same time, 48 people were victims of a hate crime. NYPD's Brooklyn South Command has seen the greatest spike in hate crimes so far this year, with a 350% uptick in 2024, compared with the same period of 2023, the data show. Since January 1st, police in southern Brooklyn have investigated nine hate crimes compared with two in the same weeks in 2023. And now we're going to bounce back over to Jewish Insider. Israel facing military diplomatic dilemma as attention turns to Rafah. By Ruth Marks Eglash. As Israel turns its attention to Gaza's southernmost governorate, Rafah, and what could be its final big battle in the war against the Islamist terror group Hamas, it faces a complex military challenge in a densely packed urban arena and a diplomatic pressure point as some of its closest allies call for restraint and even an immediate ceasefire. While four Hamas battalions are believed to be largely intact in Rafah, and most of the Iranian-backed group's senior leadership, including October 7th mastermind Yahya Sinwar, is thought to be hiding there, the presence of more than 1.5 million civilians, many of whom fled fighting in the northern and central parts of the Strip over the last four months, sheltering in the area has drawn broad international concern and mounting pressure on Israel to act with greater consideration for international law. In a phone call this week with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, President Joe Biden called on Israel to not proceed into Rafah without a credible and executable plan for ensuring the safety of and support for the more than one million people sheltering there. Other countries, including France and Israel's strategic regional ally Egypt, have expressed concern over, uh, concern over the IDF's intentions to carry out a full-scale military operation in the area. The UN and other agencies providing humanitarian aid to the people in Gaza have warned of devastating consequences if the military operation goes ahead. Despite this pressure, Netanyahu and Defense Minister Yoav Gallant appear steadfast in their goals and in their messaging that the only path to victory in the Gaza Strip, which includes the freeing of more than 100 Israeli hostages, is to continue moving southward until Hamas is destroyed, its leaders are dead or have surrendered, and the IDF has full control over the coastal territory. The key to winning the war is for Israel to take over Rafah, destroy the remaining Hamas battalions, and take control of the Egyptian border. Brigadier General retired Amir Avivi, CEO of the Israel Defense and Security Forum, told Jewish Insider this week. A former head of the Army's Engineering Corps who was responsible for the Gaza region, Avivi said there were, rays, uh, there were ways for the Army to move the civilian population out of danger as it battled with remaining Hamas fighters. He pointed to areas west and north of Rafah where people could shelter and said that with Khan Yunus, which sits just to the north of Rafah, soon cleared, people could be directed there too. There are places to move the people, said Avivi. It is far less complicated than people are saying. Once the civilian population has been removed, 
He continued, then the IDF will be able uh, to better operate in Rafah. The army has gained huge experience and intelligence in this war, Avivi said, adding that out of Hamas's 24 battalions, 18 were no longer fully functioning, two remained largely intact in refugee camps in central Gaza, and four were in the Rafah area. In addition, he said the IDF had largely destroyed Hamas's weapons-making capabilities, and overall, the terror group was not in a very good position. Eyal Pinko, a retired Navy commander who served in the Israeli Navy and Intelligence Agency for 30 years, said that military maneuvers in Rafah would be extremely difficult due to the large civilian presence and the fact that Hamas fighters had now embedded themselves inside that population. The challenges are different now, and you can't bombard Rafah from the air. Pinko, now a senior research fellow at the Begin Sadat Center for Strategic Studies at Bar-Ilan University, noted highlighting the contrast to earlier battles in the northern and central regions of Gaza, where the civilian population was easily evacuated and Hamas terrorists operated from its underground infrastructure. In Rafah, he continued, because it is such a condensed area, Israel will have to operate with less aerial force and instead use its top commando forces working slowly and in stages to eliminate the threats above and below ground. I think Israel has a huge dilemma, observed Pinko. There was a declaration at the beginning of the war that the first goal was to bring back the hostages, and the second goal was to take out Hamas. The problem is that these two goals are contra uh, contradictive to one another. Expressing pessimism that Hamas could be wiped out entirely, and that attempts to negotiate a hostage release... Talks took place earlier this week in Cairo between U.S., Egyptian, Qatari, and Israeli mediators were irrelevant, Pinko added, that the only way to reduce more of Hamas's capabilities and reduce any more of the remaining hostages was through military force. Netanyahu and Gallant, as well as most of the military establishment in Israel, have remained determined on this point, shrugging off the complexities on the ground, and ignoring the mounting criticism coming from the international community. Nothing in international law prevents Israel from entering cities, said Eugene Kotrovich, director of international law at the Jerusalem-based Kohelet Policy Forum. One is allowed to engage the enemy even in cities, especially when this is where the enemy has located itself. It would, of course, have been much better for Hamas not to locate itself in an urban setting, or to hold hostages there or anywhere. But given that they are doing so, Israel has an inherent right of self-defense, he continued, pointing out that the U.S. Army also fought against ISIS in crowded urban areas such as Fallujah, Mosul, and Baghdad in Iraq. However, Rani Shaked, a researcher on Palestinian affairs at the Truman Institute at Hebrew University, said that Israel needed to slow down at this stage and open its eyes to the concerns expressed by its allies, especially the U.S. and Egypt. He also said that Israel needed to decide exactly what it wanted to achieve in Gaza as it gears up for what might be the final phase of this war. Israel needs a victory, a symbol, stated Shaked, adding that after 132 days of war, Israel has only seen measure success in its fight against Hamas. He warned that if Israel continued this way, it will score an own goal. A war without any successes, no releasing of hostages, and no defeating of Hamas, but instead creating more problems in Rafah 
and with our allies. A hasty military operation in Rafah, continued Shaked, could have a disastrous impact on Israel's strategic ties with Egypt, which has already warned Israel to hold back, as well as on its relationship with the Biden administration, who has asked Israel to ensure there will be no humanitarian crisis in Rafah. There are things that we are not seeing because we are still operating with revenge and with emotion from October 7th, he said. Israel has to start thinking and looking at this war in another way. And again from Jewish Insider, House passes resolution condemning Hamas sexual violence with Tlaib voting present. Second gentleman Doug Emhoff spoke out against Hamas atrocities at an event on Capitol Hill earlier on Wednesday by Mark Rod. The House voted nearly unanimously in favor of a resolution on Wednesday condemning sexual violence committed by Hamas during and since its October 7th attack on Israel. Representative Rashida Tlaib, Democrat of Michigan, was the only member not to support the resolution. She voted present, while 418 other House members voted in favor. Tlaib said in a speech prior to the vote that the resolution rightfully denounces any sexual violence by Hamas, but added that it completely ignores and erases sexual violence allegedly committed by Israeli forces against Palestinians. War crimes cannot justify more war crimes, she continued. We must stand up for everyone's safety and human rights, no matter their faith, no matter their ethnicity. Yinam Cohen, Israel's consul general for the Midwest, called it shameful that Representative Rashida Tlaib attempts to undermine these horrors by making false equivalencies. The House floor vote came hours after a symposium on Hamas sexual violence organized by Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Democrat of Florida, which included remarks from Second Gentleman Doug Emhoff, Ambassador Deborah Lipstadt, Ambassador-at-Large for Women's Issues Gita Gupta, Israeli Ambassador to the U.S. Mike Herzog and his wife Shireen Herzog, a psychiatrist who has treated former Hamas hostages, several members of Congress, American Jewish leaders, and actress and activist Noah Tishby. Speakers who received a graphic private briefing from Israeli law enforcement prior to the event on the violence Hamas committed spoke out forcefully in support of the survivors and condemned efforts to deny Hamas's atrocities. The evidence is you can't even speak about it. Torture, genital mutilation, butchery, leaving women to die after they've been raped and tortured, to die in a ditch, all while you see the, thing, the images of Hamas terrorists laughing and bragging about it, Emhoff said. This happened, this happened to these women, and we have to shine a light on it, he continued. You cannot ignore the facts and the evidence when they're right in your face. Anyone who fails to acknowledge it, anyone who does deny it, must be called out. Emhoff also said that there had been too much pain and loss on both sides of this conflict, but emphasized that no matter what you're saying or feeling, this happened, and must be denounced, and it must be condemned by everyone. He said that acknowledging this pain is an important first step to peace. He described the issue as very personal to Vice President Kamala Harris, whom he said began her career as a prosecutor to protect women and children, and to President Joe Biden. This is about basic human values. This is about humanity, Herzog said. Every human being of decency must shout, must cry out. There could not be, there is no context 
that could justify these evil atrocities. Dr. Renana Eitan, the chair of psychiatry at Tel Aviv Medical Center, who has treated some of the former hostages, said that they faced all manner of horrors during their captivity and that the situation required new treatment protocols and approaches to helping the survivors. I've been a psychiatrist for over 20 years now, and I have never seen such human cruelty before, Eitan said, while also highlighting stories of hope and love from the survivors and their families. Speakers also lamented the failure of international organizations such as UN Women to promptly and forcefully condemn the violence. Wasserman Schultz called the agency's statement, which came two months after the attack, pitifully inadequate. Addressing the broader denialism of Hamas's atrocities, Wasserman Schultz added, there was silence or even worse, categorical dismissal of their stories. They were questioned, even accused of being part of a PR campaign and doxed and threatened on social media. Lipstadt, the State Department's special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism, offered particularly harsh words for women's and human rights groups that have ignored or sought to deny the atrocities. The silence of the women's groups and human rights groups, groups that claim as their raison d'etre, their reason for being, to believe the women, protect the women, protect human rights, is anti-Semitism, and it's also hypocrisy of the first order, Lipstadt said. Their credibility is on the line. Lawmakers in attendance included Representatives Kathy Manning, Democrat of North Carolina, Grace Meng, Democrat of New York, Lois Frankel, Democrat of Florida, Susan Wilde, Democrat of Pennsylvania, Claudia Tenney, Republican of New York, Suzanne Bonamici, Democrat of Washington, Sheila Cherfelis McCormick, Democrat of Florida, Gwen Moore, Democrat of Wisconsin, Marionette Miller-Meeks, Republican of Iowa, and Debbie Dingell, Democrat of Michigan. Representatives Dan Goldman, Democrat of New York, and Brad Schneider, Democrat of Illinois, attended the closed-door briefing. Frankel, who led the House resolution that passed on Wednesday, said that Gupta had committed to working on the issue at the State Department. Jewish women leaders from around the country flew into Washington to attend Wednesday's briefing, and lobby for the passage of the resolution and other support for Israel. Especially in light of the events of October 7th and after, we showed that we need to make our voices louder. Iris Kramer, the chair of National Women's Philanthropy for Jewish Federations of North America, said, Especially on the issue of gender-based atrocities, when most of the world has been and continues to be silent on the issue, we know that it's on us to step up and speak out and to make ourselves heard. And now we go back over to JTA. Leaders of Canada, Australia, and New Zealand jointly call for immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza by Felissa Kramer. The Prime Ministers of Canada, Australia, and New Zealand have joined a growing chorus of voices calling on Israel not to follow through with its plan to invade the southern Gaza city of Rafah. With the humanitarian situation in Gaza already dire, the impacts on Palestinian civilians from an expanded military operation would be devastating, the leader said in a joint statement released Thursday. We urge the Israeli government not to go down this path. There is simply nowhere else for civilians to go. The leaders... Canada's Justin Trudeau, 
Australia's Anthony Albanese and New Zealand's Christopher Luxon, say in their statement that a negotiated political solution is needed to achieve lasting peace and security and call for Hamas, which they condemn, to lay down its arms and release all hostages immediately, but they say an immediate humanitarian ceasefire is urgently needed. The call adds to mounting pressure on Israel not to invade Rafah, a city near the Egyptian border where Gazans were told to go when Israel invaded Gaza City and Khan Yunus. An estimated 1.5 million Gazans are crammed into the city, which before the war had about 200,000 residents. On Wednesday, a U.S. State Department spokesman said the White House cannot support any military operation in Rafah until such time as Israel has developed a humanitarian plan that can be executed and that they have executed such a plan. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the city is Hamas's last remaining stronghold. He has agreed to American requests to evacuate civilians from the city, but it is unclear where they will be able to go. Months of war have left much of Gaza uninhabitable. There is growing international consensus. Israel must listen to its friends and it must listen to the international community, the leader's joint statement says. The protection of civilians is paramount and a requirement under international humanitarian law. Palestinian civilians cannot be made to pay the price of defeating Hamas. In addition to the White House, the Arab League and the Vatican have both issued official opposition to Israel's planned Rafah mission. Israel called the Vatican's comments deplorable, but toned its characterization down to regrettable on Thursday. The Zionist Federation of Australia called Albanese's statement, saying that Australia must recognize the need for Israel to def- uh, uh, saying that Australia must recognize the need for Israel to defeat Hamas. Canada and Australia are two of the countries with the largest Jewish populations outside of the United States and Israel. It is extremely disappointing and frankly unreasonable for the government to call on the removal of Hamas from power as the only pathway to end the war and simultaneously call on Israel to refrain from entering Rafah to remove the last remaining Hamas stronghold, ZFA President Jeremy Liebler said in a statement. It places Israel in an impossible position. And next from JTA, in new documentary God and Country, Rob Reiner shines a light on Christian nationalism by Stephen Silver. Rob Reiner, best known for his acting role in the 1970s sitcom All in the Family and for directing a series of beloved comedies, including This is Spinal Tap, The Princess Bride, and When Harry Met Sally, is getting serious in his latest project. God and Country, which hits theaters this week, examines what Reiner sees as the troubling rise of Christian nationalism. The Jewish filmmaker produced the documentary, along with his wife Michelle and his friend Steve Oaken, with Dan Partland as director. The film follows the history and the more recent activities of Christian nationalism, from the 1950s Cold War to the fight over abortion rights, to the rise of televangelist Jerry Falwell, to the storming of the Capitol on January 6th. For decades I was aware of what we now call Christian nationalism, Reiner said, in an interview recently to JTA. It's a political movement, really, certainly not a spiritual or religious movement. 
and it started gaining more and more strength. He said he knew going into the project that he would have to navigate treacherous territory. It was a very delicate subject to take on because the one thing we didn't want to do was bash Christianity, and the film does not do that, Reiner said. It's the exact opposite, actually. Reiner based the documentary on Catherine Stewart's 2020 book, The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, which defines the movement as a biblically-derived effort to take control of all aspects of government and society. Oaken gave him the book with the idea of making it into a movie. They believe that America should be a white Christian nation, and it is ordained by God to be a white Christian nation, said Reiner, adding that its followers are willing to go to the lengths of violence to get their way. Reiner organized and funded the project and helped shape it. His name has been featured prominently in the marketing, including a recorded message before the film. He does not, however, appear on camera or in voiceover in the film itself. As a Jewish man, Rob Reiner has seen the rise of dangerous tides and is passionate it doesn't happen again. A promotional email about the film states, Reiner elaborated on that idea. Thinking about an autocracy or a theocracy where, is the, where there is a my way or the highway, and things have to be done in an autocratic way, put him in mind of the Holocaust, he said. My aunt was in Auschwitz. She survived. My wife's mother survived Auschwitz, but her entire family was killed at Auschwitz, and I visited recently there. I'm very well aware of what can happen when an autocrat takes over a country. I've gotten a lot of criticism because I'm Jewish. How dare you, a Jewish person, have anything to say about what Christians should or should not do, Reiner added. But I always say I'm not in the film. Look at the people we have in the film. It's not Ryan, Rob Reiner, the Jewish person, saying this. Indeed, the majority of the people interviewed in the film were prominent Christians who, for various reasons, are skeptics and opponents of Christian nationalism. Among those interviewed are North Carolina-based activist Bishop William Barber, New York Times columnist David French, Christianity Today editor-in-chief Russell Moore, Sister Simone Campbell, and Phil Vischer, the co-creator of the Christian cartoon series Veggie Tales. We have some of the most thoughtful, devout Christian leaders, people who are, in many cases, very conservative Christian thinkers and pastors who talk about this movement, not just as a danger to democracy, but also a danger to Christianity itself and a danger to the church, Reiner says. Stewart, who is also interviewed in the film, has said the 2022 Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade, which for 50 years guaranteed a woman's right to an abortion, has emboldened Christian nationalists to pursue an agenda that includes state funding of religious schools, prosecuting abortion providers and accomplices, and defending and even lionizing those who tried to prevent the transfer of power on January 6th. I am thrilled that my book helped inspire this documentary, and I hope it helps draw attention to the dangerous political movement in our midst, Stewart told JTA. The main thing I hope people can take away is that Christian nationalism is a political movement, not a religion, and it is profoundly hostile to democracy. With Trump's attempted coup still in the news, the film should be especially helpful in letting people connect the dots. The conservative Christian embrace of Trump, who was very much not associated with Christian politics prior to his first presidential run, figures prominently in the film. 
Reiner said Trump has become the first kind of national visible celebrity mouthpiece for their movement, and he was more than happy to take that on if he had support and if that could help him politically. Reiner added he's a part of this, but he comes at the end of this rise that has been happening since 1954. Among the critics of the movement shown in the documentary is Robert Schenck, a Christian reverend who now teaches at a Jewish seminary. Schenck was raised by a Jewish father and a mother who converted to Judaism, but he went on to become a born-again Christian at age 16. He became an Assembly of God minister and anti-abortion activist. He later broke with the Christian nationalist movement and is now a visiting scholar of Christianity and religious leadership at Hebrew College in Newton, Massachusetts. Schenck was the subject of a 2015 documentary, The Armor of Light. In the film, Schenck shares that during his career in the pulpit, he would use Trump's name in sermons as an example of everything a Christian should not be. As a minister, I was trained to use real-life examples in my sermons, and I often use Mr. Trump to illustrate what it meant to serve other gods, such as money, self-aggrandizement, and temporal pleasure, Schenck said in an email to JTA. I knew plenty of colleagues who did the same. Putting Trump forward as a selfish, egotistical, arrogant, greedy playboy casino magnate and serial adulterer. For the preachers of my generation, Trump was a living example of Jesus' admonition that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Nevertheless, as Stewart has explained, Christian nationalists have embraced Trump, who has delivered on education policy, conservative Supreme Court picks, and support for right-wing regimes abroad. In the Christian nationalist circles, he is even referred to as the Anointed One. For many years, Reiner has been one of the entertainment industry's most prominent critics of the former president on social media and in cable news appearances. Trump himself has talked about poisoning the blood of our country. He's talked about putting immigrants in camps, Reiner said. This is the kind of rhetoric that triggers people who know what can happen when people talk like that. It means a lot to me that this country remained a democracy, that this wonderful experiment that started 246 years ago of self-rule is allowed to continue, that we don't slip into an autocracy because we know what can happen when that happens. Reiner and Trump are both natives of New York's outer boroughs, are about the same age, had well-known fathers, and have been in the public eye since the 1970s. But according to Reiner, they've only met each other once. That was when Reiner and the Jewish comedy legend Billy Crystal, a longtime friend, were attending a prize fight at one of Trump's casinos in Atlantic City, and they met Trump at the hotel. I said to Billy after we walked away, I've been around actors all my life. They've got enormous egos, and they always talk about themselves. I've never met anybody who talked about themselves more than this guy did. He wasn't interested in me. He wasn't interested in Billy. He only wanted to talk about himself. Reiner's wife, Michelle, a co-producer of the film and a professional photographer, actually shot Trump's photograph for the cover of his 1987 memoir, The Art of the Deal. So she has a lot to atone for, Reiner joked. When Yom Kippur comes around, that's first on her list. Reiner inherited his comedy and filmmaking chops from his father, Carl Reiner, the late writer, director, and actor who was part of Sid Caesar's comedy ensemble, created The Dick Van Dyke Show, and directed several hit films. But it was the example of Norman Lear who created All in the Family, 
as well as the liberal advocacy group People for the American Way that inspired Reiner's own political work, including the documentary. At the Emmy Awards in January, Reiner paid tribute to Lear, who passed away in December at the age of 101, describing his mentor with an obscure Yiddish word that he said he remembered hearing his immigrant grandparents speak in the Bronx. For all you non-Jews out there, Kochleffel is a ladle, a ladle that stirs the pot. And when Norman the Kochleffel stirred the pot, he wound up changing American culture, Reiner said at the tribute. What I learned from Norman was that you could use your fame, your celebrity, whatever, to actually do some things in the political sphere, he said. Norman was a tremendous inspiration to me. I got from Norman that this is something you can do, and you can be effective because you can use your voice to get ideas across. Next from JTA, new effort underway to track anti-Semitism in the literary world, where anti-Israel sentiment is widespread, by Andrew Lappin and Felissa Kramer. The Jewish Book Council has launched an initiative to collect reports of anti-Semitism in the literary world amid a wave of incidents targeting Jewish creatives during the Israel-Hamas war. Intense pro-Palestinian activism within the broad literary community has included best-selling Jewish authors being targeted online as Zionists, despite not making comments about Israel, protests against pro-Israel writers, and demonstrations at events such as Major Writers Conference in Kansas City this week that have left some Jews feeling intimidated and unwelcome. The Jewish Book Council's new initiative announced Wednesday asks people to share evidence of alleged anti-Semitism and promises to maintain anonymity for those who submit. We encourage reports of both smaller-scale incidents, such as an individual getting review-bombed because their book includes Jewish content, and larger incidents, such as Jewish literary professionals facing threats of intimidation and violence, the group said in its announcement. It added, the hope is that by reporting and recording anti-Semitism in the literary world, we can help to put support systems in place for those affected. Israel-related controversies across the arts have been abundant since October 7th, when Hamas attacked Israel and triggered the ongoing war. Prestigious literary prizes, leadership at the New York, uh, the Jewish New York Cultural Center, 92nd Street Y, 92nd New York, major award ceremonies, and the staff of Art Forum magazine have all been upended by the four-month war with more incidents accruing by the day. What is happening in the literary world, according to some close observers, stands out for its intensity. Erica Dreyfus, a New York City writer who tracks opportunities for Jewish writers on her website, said the new incidents have amplified anti-Israel sentiment in the literary world that she said frequently veers into anti-Semitism. As with so much else, since October 7th, everything is really magnified, and there's just been tidal waves where before you maybe just saw puddles, Dreyfus said. You see it in all genres, and you see it in all countries. If you make an effort to look around, it's pretty obvious that it's everywhere. Just this week, the actor Brett Gelman had book signings in San Francisco and Illinois canceled and said that he had been the victim of anti-Semitism. The owner of the San Francisco bookstore that canceled Gelman's appearance said it was because the Stranger Things and Fleabag Star had made intemperate and ill-advised remarks against some other ethnic and social groups 
Gelman, who has visited Israel, appeared on its leading sketch comedy show mocking anti-Semitism in the Bay Area and advocated for it on social media since October 7th, said he had disparaged only Hamas and anti-Semites. Last week, hundreds of writers demanded in an open letter that free speech, that the free speech organization PEN America release a statement about Palestinian writers killed in Israel's counteroffensive in Gaza and name their murderer Israel, a Zionist colonial state funded by the U.S. government. They say that if Penn does not take an actual stand in an actual genocide, the group should disband. The letter follows an incident last month when Penn America rejected calls to cancel an event with the Jewish celebrity Mayan Bialik over criticism of her support for Israel. A leading pro-Palestinian literary activist, Rhonda Jarrar, was forcibly removed from the event for protesting during it. Bialik, the former star of The Big Bang Theory, and until recently a host of Jeopardy, is one of the most prominent Jewish and pro-Israel voices on social media. Much of her content since October 7th has focused on calling attention to the plight of the Israel hostages held in Gaza and decrying sexual violence perpetrated by Hamas. And, like many other pro-Israel Jews on social media, she has participated in efforts to direct support to Israeli soldiers. Some of her content has generated criticism. Last year, she made several videos with Noah Tishmi, a pro-Israel activist who has worked with the Israeli government, in which she rejected the idea of a ceasefire, a top demand of pro-Palestinian activism that Israel rejects because it would leave Hamas in place. Late last month, after Bialik posted a video of herself laughing at Jewish comedian Dan Achtendut's bit about Israeli history, her critics said she was trivializing a conflict in which tens of thousands of Palestinians have died. For some pro-Palestinian writers, merely staging an event with Bialik, who was set to interview Jewish comedian Moshe Kasher about his new book, Mark Penn as an Apologist for Genocide. Two award-winning authors, Angela Flournoy and Kathleen Alcott, broke ties with the group over the event, saying that Penn America was platforming a hugely influential racist who has incited ongoing slaughter. Flournoy, author of The Turner House and a National Book Award finalist, and Alcott, the O. Henry Prize-winning author of Emergency, withdrew from a different Penn event in protest. Flournoy said in a message she later shared on Instagram that they were protesting the organization's reluctance to take a stand against the genocide in Palestine, and particularly the targeting of writers, journalists, and artists. She added there is a difference in an organization remaining impartial, a dubious policy itself during a genocide, and what is happening at Penn right now. In addition to criticizing Bialik, the authors also expressed concern that Penn was partnering on the Bialik Kasher event with Writer's Block, a Los Angeles literary events organization run by a Jewish woman that had canceled a planned event with the author of the, a book critical of Israel in the weeks following October 7th. Andrea Grossman had canceled the planned talk with Nathan Thrall, a Jewish author whose new nonfiction book, A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, deals critically with Israel's military occupation of the West Bank over what she said were concerns that the community 
is deeply polarized, that it would be irresponsible to promote a program on this subject to a largely Jewish audience when people on all sides are being bombed, killed, and buried. Thrall and several other pro-Palestinian authors criticized the decision at that time. For a free speech group like Penn to now partner with the same organization, Flournoy and Alcott believed was hypocritical. The choice to partner with an organization who deems writing that humanizes Palestinians as too polarizing is particularly confounding given Penn's own statement against canceling similar events, Flournoy wrote. The Bialik-Kasher event went ahead anyway on January 31st with Writer's Block and was disrupted by protesters representing the group Writers Against the War in Gaza. The group drew attention to the nearly 100 writers and journalists believed to have been killed by Israeli forces in Gaza since the war began. One Egyptian-Palestinian author and professor, Gerar, refused to leave the event and was removed by security. Gerar later harshly criticized Penn and people she referred to only as Zionists on social media. The author of the novel A Map of Home and a professor at California State University at Fresno, Gerar has been the subject of controversy in the past, for writing in 2008. At some point, all of us in the literary community must demand that white editors resign. Penn rejected Gerard's criticism. When it comes to public events, the open exchange of ideas cannot devolve into an environment where only the loudest voices are heard about the event's protesters. Allison Lee, the group's Los Angeles director, said in a statement, Bialik declined to comment to JTA. Gerard was also connected to a pro-Palestinian dis- two pro-Palestinian disruptions at the annual annual conference of the Association of Writers and Writing Professionals uh, professionals earlier this month in Kansas City. She did not attend, but before the conference, a group called the Radius of Arab American Writers, which has countered Gerard among its, uh, which has counted Gerard as among its leaders, sent a message to all event moderators urging them to read a pro-Palestinian statement before their events. The event organizers would like to acknowledge that we are gathering during during an active genocide taking place in Gaza. The suggested statement starts before noting that the war follows decades of colonial violence under Israeli apartheid. The statement also expresses solidarity with indigenous people, victims of genocide in Africa, black people, and LGBTQ plus people. The conference organizers responded by saying the call had not been sanctioned and that the conference was committed to being free of harassment, fear, intimidation, or ridicule without offering any specific concerns, drawing another round of criticism from the Arab American Writers Group. Then, during the conference, the group staged a two-hour protest calling for a ceasefire. The demonstration took place in communal spaces, such as a book fair and exhibition hall, and did not target any of the many sessions of Jewish interest on the conference agenda. Still, some Jewish writers said they felt intimidated and, and, and unable to traverse the conference openly. Some Jewish writers also participated in the demonstrations. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, and I thank you very much for listening.